So are we saying that uh, the condition of our hearts so often are we are prone to wonder. We feel it, Lord. Lord, we, we're here as we encourage one another. We're all facing the same way. We're concentrating on you. And it's great for an hour or so. But Lord, when we get back out into our own sphere of influence and the battles, we do prone, we, we do feel like we're, we're not as close as we want to be. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would take our hearts, that you would seal it, seal it for your courts above. And Lord, help us to remember that there really is something about your name and that one day, not only kings and kings will pass away, but every day, or one day, every knee will bow to you and every tongue will give you praise, will confess to you, and we will give an account to you. Lord, I pray that will be ever in the forefront of our minds and hearts. And so now, Lord, as we open up this incredible passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy 5 about a summary of how you want us to live, Lord, may you seal that to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be ever more committed to serving you because we love you, because you love your church. In Jesus' name. Well, if you haven't yet done it already, I'll open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 5, 1 to 11. And uh, last week, we began a study into some of the most beautiful words of the Old Testament. Beautiful words. The law of God. Now, we began a study that we erroneously called the Ten Commandments. It's erroneous. Now, we call them the Ten Commandments because... Of course, God gave us commands. Yes, indeed, in these commands, he gave us ten things that God's people are to do. But, with a capital B, capital U, and capital T. Now, we call this portion of Scripture, Deuteronomy 5, 1 to 21, and the original version as found in Exodus 20, 1 to 17, the Ten Commandments. But there are two errors in labeling these portions of Scripture that way. The one, one error is in English, and one error is in Hebrew. Now, the 10-cent English word of these passages that the learned guys have labeled this is called the Decalogue. And you may have heard the term Decalogue. Now, this word is kind of a mashup of two words. Deca means 10, and log means word. And so, of course, what that means is we got the Decalogue here means the Ten Words. So it's not, in a sense, the Ten Commandments, even from the scholars, they say that. And in Hebrew, the word is Devarim, which means something spoken. So again, on two accounts, we've got this portion of Scripture we're going to be talking about today, the Ten Words. So it's mislabeled as the Ten Commandments. Now you might be thinking, well, of course, God spoke His law, His Ten Commands, and I would say, of course, on that, we are agreed. However, there is far more to it than God simply barking out orders. Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 5.1 that they were to learn these words, learn them, that they might do them. It was not that they were like little more than animals to be morally corralled. Now, Dr. Daniel Block, who I consider, if I can use the word guru, of all things Deuteronomy, this, this guy's amazing. Uh, he said this about Exodus 20, 
again, the first time that the so-called Ten Commandments were given in Scripture. And here's what he said in relation to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words. Notice it does not say God issued all these commands or God commanded all these laws. No, it was not cast as legislation. It was not cast as law-giving. This is a word of communication. Simply put, God desires to instruct his people of how he wants them to live. Even though they're redeemed, even though they're fallen, he wants them to live a certain way. And that is indeed a beautiful thing when you think about it. Even at the very frightening place called Mount Sinai, when God gave the law, when God gave his ways, he still desired to communicate to his people how he wanted them to live. Remember, he came out and he spoke these words. But the enemy has lied to us about Yahweh. And we tend to think of him more like a mythological Zeus more than anything else. You know how he is sitting high on a mountain, you know, with the lightning bolt in his hand, ready to fling it at any one of his people who step out of line. This is not the picture that God paints of himself or of his attitude toward his people. God, through Moses, was teaching his people how to live his ways. And this is why he spoke to them. He instructed them. And as we go further in Deuteronomy, we're going to see how very detailed is this instruction. But that was the First Testament, Old Testament. What about the Second Testament, the New Testament? Well, it's a very similar pattern. For how did the Apostle John describe Jesus? Deity made flesh. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the, finish it, word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, this word, word, is a Greek word, logos, which means, among many other things, an instruction or an explanation. In this case, the Logos, Jesus, explained the Father. So what do we have? God in the Old Testament was teaching his people his ways. God in the New Testament was doing what? Teaching his people his ways. Do you see a pattern here? Also notice, it is the ten words. Why did God give his people ten words when he met with them on Mount Sinai? Why not two words, or five words, or even 613 specific words, which is the number that some rabbis have as the sum total of all the laws in the Old Testament? Well, believe it or not, the highfalutin scholarly reason why there are ten commandments, or ten words here, is because we have ten fingers. That's, that's literally, I'm not making it up, this is their conclusion. Ten words because we have ten fingers. God's people were to recite God's ten words as they were going through their day, as they see their fingers. Remember the ten words. Not to pull out a scroll whenever they wanted to review the summary of the covenant. And so I think it would be a good idea for us to do the same. So let's hold our hands in front of us and let's recite the ten words. And so, do this. Come on now. Participate when you do this. And so, as we do, let's, let's think about this. And as I try to, to kind of put this 
into concise things here, concise statements. I came up with uh, kind of like five positive words and five negative words. Okay, now since I'm dominant in my left hand, I'm going to start with my left hand. You can you know, start with whatever you want, whichever finger you want, but I'm going to say for me, I'm going to say that with my thumb, I'm going to remember the command number one, loyal to Yahweh alone. And my index finger, reject all other gods. This, again, this is positive words here. My middle finger is to wear his name properly. Number four, ring finger, keep the Sabbath. And number five, honor mom and dad or dad and mom. So go to my next hand, literally on the other hand. Go to, my, go to these six negative commands now, or six negative words. Thumb, don't murder. Index finger, don't commit adultery. Middler, don't steal. Ring finger, don't bear false witness. And number eight, number ten, don't covet what isn't yours. There they are, ten commandments, ten words, right at our fingertips, literally. And so as we go through our day, let's take a few seconds as we look at our hands, as we look at our fingers, to kind of recite what really is a summary statement of God's ways to his people, how he wants them to live. And speaking of God's ways to God's people, let me remind us of who the ten words were given to. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 2. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, Mount Sinai. And then skip down to verse 6. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's who God is. That's his relationship with his people. And so here's Moses reminding Israel who made the first move. It was the Lord. It was he who made a covenant with the people on Mount Sinai. Israel did not move toward Yahweh. Yahweh moved toward his people to make the covenant. And notice how the Lord did not merely talk to the people with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm. He did something. He delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. So let's stop here for a moment and marvel again. The Lord has always made the first move toward us, hasn't he? We mess things up, God cleans it up. Isn't that great? It's bad that we do it, but he cleans it up. David tells us that, that the Lord remembers something. He remembers something about us, that we are but dust. We are frail, pitiful people indeed. God is the almighty initiator. He formed man and woman from the dust of the ground. He gave them life, and God gave them a job to do, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And after Adam and Eve rebelled, the Lord was right there, wasn't he, providing covering for our first parents who are now sinful, fallen parents. And the Lord prevented Adam and Eve from re-entering the Garden of Eden, but it was not without the promise ringing in their ears that he would send them a Redeemer, his Messiah. And so because Yahweh delivered Israel, because the Lord is faithful to keep his promise, and because the Lord desires to glorify himself through his people, let's now turn to the summary of the covenant. Today we're going to deal with just three of these ten beautiful words that the Lord used Moses to instruct the people. And these words are what I call the upward gaze because they refer specifically to one's relationship to Yahweh. 
Now, word number one, found in Deuteronomy 5, 7. You shall have no other gods before me. Straightforward, pretty simple, right? Pretty easy to understand. It's a straightforward, but it was one, it was, a, it was a word based on relationship, not merely religious worship, although there's a lot of that there. As great as Yahweh is, the covenant he's making with his inferiors, as we mentioned a number of times, is like that of a marriage relationship. I mean, think about this. What would Almighty God want with a bunch of pitiful people? You think about this. You think about, you know, you've got these, these, these interesting marriages, right? You've got the guy who's, who's really just, uh, I can't describe it, guy, handsome, whatever. But then you've got, you know, he's marrying this person who is not exactly up to speed, you know, up to a par as, as, as he is, right? Kind of ugly and those kinds of things. In the same kind of way with Yahweh and his people. He is the promise maker and keeper. He is the life giver. He is beautiful beyond description. But who is Israel? Indeed, who is anybody in God's eyes? Israel was to respond in faithfulness to Yahweh, not letting their eyes and hearts wander after other objects of affection. And the Lord of heaven and earth, in essence, tells Israel, I have my eyes of love and affection on you, and I ask you to do the same to me. That's what this command is all about. No wonder the Lord tells them over and over again, though, don't forget, remember what I have done for you. Hence the reason for their feasts and for the sacrificial system. And with us as well. You know, it gets so easy for us to get distracted, isn't it? In our storms of life, when circumstances pull at us and the world screams at us and when the pressure comes upon us, what we have consistently remembered about the Lord when the pressure is not on us will come out. You know, it's like sitting in a fairly expensive restaurant. You may have had that experience. Pre-COVID days, of course, right? And all of a sudden, a waiter comes by, you know, with the tray, you know, with uh, drinks on top, tall glasses, he sees that right there. And you, know what, you don't know what the glasses contain until, until the waiter kind of trips. And then what happens to the, the glasses? They fall. Right away, you know exactly what's in those glasses, right? You know at that point. It's the same with us in our lives. We can claim all day long that we have no rival gods in the sanctuary of our hearts and minds until we get bumped hard. And what is in there comes spilling out for everybody to see. And maybe surprisingly what we see. And that's why we need to come together regularly for worship and encouragement. We need to remember the Lord and his ways in a corporate setting. Because we're in this together. Together how we need to give our God the worship that he alone deserves. When we neglect it, what happens? Human nature then begins to rationalize and justify why we don't need the fellowship and why we don't need the corporate worship. But the writer to the Hebrews tells us that the closer to the end that we come, the more we are to regularly engage and make it a priority 
to come together for these things. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tells us this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more. Why? As you see the day approaching. Now, I know about you, but the times sure seem to be where the day is coming closer and closer, quicker and quicker, don't you think? So let's be loyal to the Lord by meeting together for worship and encouragement. Because the Lord is God, let's allow no rivals of him in our hearts. Word number two, you shall not make any for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. As we said earlier, the positive command, as it were, is to reject all other gods. I see two things in these verses that God through Moses says violates this word, this command. The first is misusing something that could be called good. A carved statue made to look like something the Lord spoke into existence. You know, like a thing of nature, be an animal or a bird or even a human being or even a depiction of a star or the sun or the moon. Depending on the artist, and you've seen this, we've all seen beautiful works of art, haven't we? You know, the artist is just amazing. It can be a thing of beauty. But God says, don't make those things. Now, as with anything, when someone receives a hard and fast rule without an explanation, what does a fallen heart want to do? Wants to rebel, right? It's like the sign, keep off the grass in big letters right on this place where it looks like a green carpet. You may have seen lawns like that. I don't have a lawn like that, but you may have seen like that. Well, what does any self-respecting, independent, rebellious person want to do, if not actually do it? You want to step on that grass, of course, right? Why did God tell Israel not to make these carved things? Moses gives an explanation. Yahweh says, don't spend your resources making these things for yourself. For the purpose of, wait for it, bowing down and worshiping them. Why, this goes along with the first word, right? Have no other gods before me. Now, on the positive side, after basically Moses is saying this, after all that the Lord has given you, Israel, why would you want to go and make something and then bow down to it? It does not have life in itself. It does not give you life. Yahweh gives you life. If you make this, it has no life. But how many of us then and now Kind of act like Dr. Frankenstein. You know, we slap some things together. We zap our creation with a little bit of energy and voila, oh, I've created life. No, you haven't. It may seem to be life. And even if it moves on its own or it learns such as computers that contain artificial intelligence, they don't have life in themselves. And certainly they cannot give the creator of that thing 
what they need. Indeed, who is the giver of life? Yahweh, yes. Who is the one that can give us everything that we have? Or who does and has given us everything we have and are? Who can create with the word saying, let there be? And there is. It's Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Once again, though, Yahweh's command for Israel to not manufacture gods is couched in terms of relationship. Again, he's not up there like a Zeus waiting to zap somebody who steps out of line. The Lord tells his people why they cannot make those gods to rival their relationship with him. And what does he say? Yahweh is a jealous God over his people. Now, anybody who is in or who has been in a marriage relationship knows what this is all about. True? Every spouse in every healthy relationship has some measure of jealousy. Why is that? Because both husband and wife, they want to maintain the marriage. Jealously, jealousy, properly applied, is not a selfish controlling of the other person, but it is a protection against the threat of others seeking to break apart an exclusive marriage relationship. And I dare say that if both husband and wife don't have some sort of a jealousy in that marriage, then there's a problem. Nowadays, though, marriage is looked upon so cheaply by many. For example, public officials who refuse to be seen in public with someone who is not their spouse are labeled with all kinds of bad names. Think Mike Pence, for example. If you think of other government officials who refuse to at dinner or whatever with a member of the opposite sex. So one reason for God's people to avoid creating idols is because the Lord jealously guards his exclusive relationship with his people. No Yahweh and sort of thing. God is never okay with Israel worshiping him and Dagon, for example, a god of the Philistines, even if Yahweh is given first place in the pantheon. No, theirs is an exclusive relationship. It is Yahweh and Israel alone. In our day, there is no Yahweh and Allah sort of thing. There is no Jesus and Muhammad sort of thing. There was only Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's only one Messiah, Christ Jesus our Lord. He alone demands exclusive loyalty. No mixing of deities will do. And the second reason why is what loyalty to the Lord or lack thereof does to the home and how a, the head of the home does or does not adhere to this affects generations. Verses 9 and 10, the Lord tells us that the Lord visits or extends the punishment of the fathers upon and up to several generations after him. Now, that's the negative part of this spiritual fact of life. The positive is that the Lord shows his steadfast love to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, think about this. Where have you heard that somewhere before? Love me and keep my commandments. How about Jesus? Comes from his mouth during during the days of his ministry. He was quoting this. Let me touch on these interactions by the Lord on the unfaithful and the faithful heads of households. When the father is unfaithful to the Lord, living as though he wants nothing to do with Yahweh, God describes him as one who hates 
the Lord. That's pretty harsh stuff, but that's what God says. To be unfaithful in this sense is to do what God said not to do, to make and commit oneself to idolatry, to make those idols. Now, this, of course, is far different than stumbling and falling into moral lapses at times where people need to repent and get up and go on. What we're talking about here, though, is a lifestyle of idolatry. And when the head of the household does that, God extends the pain of the iniquity on the future generations. This is what he says. Now, that's pretty serious stuff. But you might be thinking, well, that's so unfair, isn't it? That's so unfair for the kids and the grandkids to suffer for the sins of their fathers and grandfathers. But to quote Grandpa in the great movie, The Princess Bride, he asked the question, so when did anybody say that life was fair? Well, hold that thought, Coke, because we're going to come back to this. But let's look at the other side now. The Lord will show his covenant love to thousands to those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, you tell me, is it fair of the Lord to bless thousands through our stumbling and bumbling, but in varying degrees remaining loyal to Yahweh? Is that fair to expect God to bless our kids and grandkids? It's not fair at all, is it? What right do we have to expect the Lord to bless our kids and grandkids for our faithfulness? We have no right. But he does. That's what he says. The point is that I'm glad that the Lord is not fair, aren't you? No, the Lord is gracious, and he's merciful, and he's kind, because that's who he is. And even when it comes to the Lord visiting the iniquity of the future generations of unfaithful fathers, every generation has an opportunity to break the cycle. Ask me how I know. That's why it's so important that we pray for our kids and grandkids if we have them. That's why it's never too late to step up our service to the Lord. And the bottom line is that parents and grandparents and even father and mother figures in other people's lives carry awesome influence for good and for evil. Let's press on. Let's serve the Lord in the presence of kids and grandkids and by the spirit and power of the Lord to pass on to them the Lord's ways. The Lord loves to bless but the Lord will curse as well. He has no qualms as it were doing that. Eyes are watching. Ears are listening. Hearts are open. Let's make sure that our kids and grandkids see and hear and experience consistency in our walk with the Lord for far more is caught than taught. Would you agree with that? And now word number three, Deuteronomy 5.11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. When we were reciting the ten words a few minutes ago, I described this a little bit differently than what Moses stated right here. I said what? I said wear his name properly. And that's for a good reason. Because primarily when we read this word, you know, don't take the Lord's name in vain, Almost universally, what do we do? What goes to our mind automatically? We don't use God's name as a cuss word. Now, of course, wearing his name means that. Yes, that's true. But there's far more to it than just that. And what we have here is a misunderstanding 
an incomplete understanding of the word take. And this word literally means in the original language to carry or to bear or to wear the name of the Lord. That's what it literally means. And here's where I want to quote again Dr. Daniel Block, again, the guru, if I could say it, of all things Deuteronomy. He does a masterful job at describing how the people of Yahweh were to wear his awesome name. This text assumes that every true Israelite is stamped with the name of the Lord, branded by God. In Isaiah 44, 5 and 6, he talks about people having written on their hands the phrase, belonging to the Lord, belonging to Yahweh. This means that the Israelites are the property of the Lord and that wherever they go, they declare to the world they belong to the Lord and they advertise to the world what their God is like. Bearing the name of the Lord means claiming Yahweh as one's God and covenant Lord. Bearing the name falsely means to claim his name, but then to live as though he belongs to Baal or to some other god. You shall not take or carry or wear or bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. And this is also a New Testament truth as well. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. So what is Dr. Block saying here? God's people are to live in such a way that everybody around them knows this person's different than us. They may not put the finger on it first, but they know that there's a difference. Or maybe, depending on how outspoken a person is, like our beloved Kathy, right? The pagans will know that he or she is a person of Yahweh because he or she has told the pagans in no uncertain terms of who his or her God is. And the difference between God's people and pagans lies directly in how they live out the ways of Yahweh. Not the ways of how pagans describe Yahweh or how pagans think that we ought to serve Yahweh. When Yahweh says, no idols in worship, that's exactly what he means. And by the way, way back in the day, an author discovered something. That when God says to Israel, do not have any images in, in worship to worship me, that was unique among all the nations surrounding them. No other nation did that. All the other nations had images that they bowed down to in their worship. Israel did not. Can you imagine the pushback other nations would have when they would see Israel worshiping God? As it was then, so it is now. The Lord calls us to wear his name as well. What does it mean for us? We are to be distinct from the world and its ways. Short, sweet, simple as that. And the Lord expressed this to the Father right before he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, that we are in the world but not of it, just as he was. Here's what he said in John 17, 14. I have given them, my disciples, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As followers of Christ, being in the world but not of it comes with a cost. It starts with fully accepting the word of the Father, Yahweh, and that's who the Father is. And the Lord Jesus explained him and revealed him to us. The world tries so hard, though, doesn't it, to have Christians change the word of Yahweh 
even just a little bit. But it's that just little bit that can spell the difference between spiritual life, eternal life, and eternal death. It really does. It's that important. I believe it was Paul Washer who said something to the effect that everybody would love him. Now, if you know anything about Paul Washer, you know that not a whole lot of people love Paul Washer. He tells it exactly the way it is. He says, everybody would love him if he would preach the gospel and change just one little thing about what he preaches. And that one little thing is the word A. He says, all I have to do is to start preaching that Jesus is a way to the Father and not the way to the Father. And the entire world will love me. The gospel is exclusive. And when we tell the people that the gospel is exclusive and Jesus is the only way to the Father, that ruffles some feathers, doesn't it? Now, how we follow Jesus, we need to cling to everything he says and not deviate from it one iota. Because when it comes to truth, one small error is deadly. It's like putting grains of batrachotoxin. You know what batrachotoxin is? Even a couple small, minute amounts, as big as two grains of salt, can kill a person. You know what that batrachotoxin is? You know what it comes from? It comes from those little yellow frogs, poison frogs in Western Columbia. It's what the people make their poison darts out of. It's estimated to be more than a thousand times more deadly than cyanide is. But the bottom line is that it is imperative that we get things right as we learn the ways of the Lord. And when we discover, for example, that we've, we've gone through Scripture and we, we know, we think we know what the Word says, and we teach it and we preach it and we share with others, but then we discover that we're wrong, guess what we do? We repent, we turn around, and then we go and teach the right way. The last thing we want to do is to adopt the ways of the world as they tell us how to exegete Scripture. And so what do we make of words 1, 2, and 3 of the 10 beautiful words of Yahweh here that he gave to his people? Let's recap and apply this precious word to our lives today. Remember that Yahweh, through Moses, gave his people a twofold incentive for them to enter into the covenant he made with them. First, I am the Lord your God. I'm Yahweh. And second, I delivered you. I redeemed you. I love you. I brought you out of slavery. And therefore, because of who Yahweh is and what he did for his people, they were to serve him exclusively and loyally and forsaking all lesser gods, cling to him alone. They were to demonstrate their allegiance to Yahweh by wearing his name properly. How were they to do that? They were to loyally keep his commands, showing that they were under his loving authority. And those who were indeed grateful for his deliverance would then serve him gladly. They would clothe themselves with the splendor of holiness and heartfelt obedience to his ways. And as Christians, who is the Lord? Yahweh, Jesus, yes. What did he do for you and me? He delivered us from sin, from slavery to sin. That's what he did. Do you believe that? He didn't just die so we can go to heaven. He delivered us from the slavery of sin. Romans 6, 2 says, we died to sin. We're separated from it. Romans 6, 4 says, 
We were raised with Christ to live a new way of life. Romans 6, 6 says, Our old self was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be rendered inoperative so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And based on that reality, Romans 6, 11 ought to permeate the way we live. Paul writes these words, So you are to consider yourselves dead to sin, separated from sin, and alive in union with God in Christ. But some don't know their spiritual reality, do they? The almighty power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in them, in all of us. Christ really did deliver us from our enslavement from sin. How tightly do you cling to this truth? We are a new people. We really do have a new life. And when the pressure comes is when our new life gets put to the test. Isn't that true? When we encounter hard things in our day-to-day lives is when our new life has a chance to shine through. Don't you like the hard times? Our new life shines through in those times. Now, we all know how great of a temptation it is to be fearful because of COVID. All of us know that temptation. Some are facing possible job loss for their stand or for them to take the jab and violate their conscience. Some are facing that. And some are fearful of contracting it. And some even in the church are beginning to believe that the rhetoric that CRT teaches, like, for example, that white males are the oppressors and everybody else is the oppressed. And the tensions can get so ratcheted up that anger and violence can actually happen over this. But what does God's word tell us in relation to fear and relation to uh, anger? 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul told his timid mentee, Timothy, these words. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And what about anger? James 1 says this, to let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In short, how we live our lives when the pressure is on depends on what we are wearing, what we put on. And what we put on depends on what we gaze upon. Colossians chapter 3 tells us about these things. So if you want to turn to Colossians, you can or just kind of listen in. In Colossians 3, 1 to 4, Paul tells this to his brothers and sisters in Colossae. If then you have been raised with Christ, literally since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is right now. This is not later. It's right now. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And then verses 12 to 14 tells us what kind of clothing Christians are to wear as a result of this. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
just like Israel and their relationship with Yahweh after he delivered them. So all of us who are true followers of Christ have a new life, a new relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our deliverer. And so my question is this, is he your deliverer in the here and now? Or are you content to have him be your deliverer just so that you won't go to hell? Now, it's true that the Lord delivers his people from ultimate destruction. But why be content with only that? Paul says we are right now more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so to tie everything together, let me read for us Jesus' encounter with a Pharisee and a sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. Now, I want you to see who you are in this story. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. He dreaded that statement right there. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 500 days' wages and the other 50 days' wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the death of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon said, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you judge rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. A major gist, by the way. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Which servant are you? The one who was forgiven little or the one who was forgiven much? How big is your pile of sin debt? How much has the Lord delivered you from? How much has he forgiven you? It will show in your life, whichever way it is. If you love little, what does that say? You consider your sins not very much. If you love a lot, what does that say? That you've been forgiven a lot. You realize how much he's done for you. So for whoever is forgiven little loves the Lord little. And who is forgiven much loves the Lord much. And how do we know that we love the Lord much? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. 
he also said, whoever does not love me does not keep my commands. We can tell in a moment's notice how much we love the Lord by keeping his commands. Don't settle for loving the Lord just a little. Go all out and love the Lord a lot. Let's pray. The Lord has always been based upon our love for you and especially your love for us. This relationship that we have with you, you're not just the up there just, just being the ultimate lawgiver. You are the lover of our soul. Lord, your desire for us is that we would live the way that you would have us to live. Because, Lord, you know best how to work things out. You know best how we tick. You know best what it means for us to live a life that you've created us for. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, and that, Lord, that we would love you and we would show our love for you. We would show our heartfelt love and affection for you by the way we live our lives and, in large measure, how we obey you. Lord Jesus, you obeyed the Father and thereby showing the world that you love the Father. That's what you said. Help us, Lord, to follow you and show the world that we love you because we obey you, because we love you, because you loved us first. And now I pray, Father, as we turn attention to our giving and also to our singing, I pray, Lord, that you'll help us with these acts of worship to give you the worship that you alone deserve. In Jesus' name.